Welcome to episode five of the Student Physio Podcast. This week, it's me, Connor Wright, hosting. And me, Lewis Kyan, as co-host. Today, we have the pleasure of welcoming Andy Henson onto the podcast. Andy has two degrees, one in sports rehabilitation and the other a bachelor's in physio and currently works as head of academy physiotherapy at Doncaster Rose FC. So, Andy, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Okay, so Connor just gave us a brief introduction to start us off. So Andy, could you tell us a bit more about yourself and your current role and your past roles? Yeah, so um, so I started in 2013 at Bradford University doing uh, BSc Sports Rehab. Um, from that, I had quite a few different placements in, in sport and in the university clinic. Um, at my final year, I did a six-month placement at Chesterfield Football Club. Um, where following my graduation in 2016, I had a full-time job working with the first team uh, as a sports rehabber alongside the, the head physio there. Um, so I, I did that role for a season um, and then because of limited job opportunities um, full-time, I sort of went back into to physiotherapy at Bradford um, in 2017. Uh, because of the way the course worked, I managed to jump into the second year. So the BSc was only a two-year course for me. Um, so whilst I was doing that, I did two seasons at a team in Bradford called Silsden, uh, just semi-professional. So I was doing a couple of evenings a week and then match days working with them. Um, and then from that, I also did some work with the Great British Medical Football Team, um, covering two international tournaments. So I covered one in, in 2019 in Prague and then in Mexico in 2020, which we're fortunate enough to win both. Um, so that was a really good experience against teams from all over the world, like Brazil, Argentina, places like that, where you're playing um, six games in seven days. So that was quite an interesting experience in, in, in a different sort of environment. Uh, following graduating in 2019, I, um, I did three months in a community physio rotation and pretty much straight away, I knew it, was, it wasn't really what I wanted to do. Um, so I was... Look, I started looking for jobs, had a few interviews and ended up going to Port Vale over in Stoke, uh, where I was the senior academy physio there for six months. Um, and then I recently moved in March, just before the lockdown to Doncaster. Um, so I think I did four days before being put on furlough from the, um, from the lockdown. So I started there as a, as a head of academy physio in, in March last year, um, when I'm still at the minute. That's great. A lot of quite a lot of stuff in a condensed time period. So that's really good. Um, moving on to the first part of the episode, we'll talk about physiotherapy and sport. So, Andy, as you've primarily had primarily had roles in football since graduating, could you tell us what made you want to work in sport and in specific football? Yeah, so so I've always enjoyed sport, uh, especially football. I've played a lot of sport since since I was younger, and I've always had a keen interest in in like gym and strength training and sort of enhancing sports performance um, and you know like, like body images and the mental benefits of exercise as well um, I've never really seen myself as sort of a, a nine to five office sort of person so I that sort of made me feel like being in a more active job which I find that sports a pretty good fit for that um, in terms of physio I sort of fell into it really I ended up doing the a sports science course at college and quite enjoyed the sports injury modules. Um, and I like the idea of the problem solving behind diagnosing injuries and then the challenge of, of rehabilitating them to a higher standard. So I ended up with the sports going into sports rehab uh, from that really um, in terms of, in terms of walking in a, in a football environment, I think it's the excitement of, of, being in sports, so that excitement of the match days, training, the, the changing room, um, obviously there's banter and stuff like that with, with the lads, with the staff. It's a high energy environment as well that sort of keeps you on your toes, really. Um, and you get the opportunity to work with elite athletes to sort of push their their boundaries, push their limits to make them, to enhance their performance. Um, and it, you get a really good opportunity to see how the body reacts and adapts to the demands and the strain that you put them under. Uh, which you, which I don't feel like you tend to get in the in the NHS environment. Um, I feel like you can challenge yourself as well to, a, to quite a high. You have to provide a high standard of service, so you've got to really, really challenge yourself in terms of 
how you're working with the players to be able to to meet their demands in the environment really so that's sort of sort of why I thought I was really want to work in sport really especially football um sort of two questions from what you said there um if we go back to you doing sports rehab first of all um at Bradford do you think having done the sports rehab and then done the BSc that's sort of given you a bit of an edge over other physios who have graduated in terms of applying for jobs in sport um yeah I think it's, it's definitely helped me to to find a job in sport I think with the the placements it provides you it sort of opens opens the door into a, a sporting environment so having my placement to Chesterfield for six months gave me sort of a foot in the door that a physio on a placement in the NHS wouldn't necessarily have. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think on the basis of your placements, you probably are at a bit more of an advantage than the physio straight away. Um, and I also I also think that having done both courses, I think you get a little bit more of a broad knowledge of sports injuries and and the, the specific rehab in a more of a sporting setting than you would in the physio. Um, and I think you're more you are more prepared for that sporting environment when you do graduate um, than compared to just a BSc physio on its own, that you might have done a couple of MSK and then obviously the, the majority of the rest of them would be inpatients in NHS. Um, so I feel like it, it did give me an advantage over the other physios. Um, you've also got stuff like your assignments on the sports rehab tend to be based around MSK or sport. So you're always spending your time researching specific things that are more probably um, more specific to a sporting setting. Um, so also and like your modules, like your MSK modules, which, which are pretty much the same as the physios. And then you've got stuff like your enhancing sports performance, your trauma, um, those sort of things prepare you that little bit more. Um, and then in, with the, like I say, with the placements, with the, with the NHS, they are they, they prepare me well for the, the sheer caseload of people I was seeing and seeing more patients of a variety of different things. But when it came to the rehab side of things of that, your demands for your rehabilitation are less. So it tends to be back to day, daily ADLs, pain-free, as, or as close to pain-free as possible. Whereas in that sporting setting, your baseline is high-level performance in sport. So you need to be able to do absolutely everything to be able to get back to where you are at baseline. Um, so yeah, I would say it probably has has prepared me that little bit more for for a sporting setting than what an NHS NHS sort of base placements would have done. Yeah, that's good to hear. And and staying on that topic, and and maybe moving slightly on from the study and the courses and what's you know prepared you best. Um, is working in sport and more specifically football uh, what you hoped and expected it would be? Um, I think yes and no. I think in terms of you, you go in, you know, it, it's quite a high pressure environment. You you expect that because of how well how you see it in terms of from the outside. You've got you've got players who are wanting to get back to, to full fitness as quick as they can. You've got coaching staff that are wanting the players back or wanting the players to play through injuries or questioning, can they not play through that and why are they not in training? So you've got the high pressure of that. You've got parents, especially at the and within the academy football, that are saying, well, my, lad's, my lad needs to be playing. There's obviously the long-term future on the line in terms of scholarships. They need to be playing minutes to be able to be seen to be getting that scholar. Um and it's difficult because they don't they're quite they can be more pushy than the players sometimes parents um so you've got that sort of high pressure there and the pressure of returning um a player to that high level of standard that they was previously at before their injury without the risk of re-injury occurring um so you you sort of expect that going in you've got obviously you've got you you're working daily with the players so you have the opportunity to progress and regress the rehab um, as you need, as, as you see fit. Um, and especially within football, you go in knowing you're going to get a lot of lower limb injuries, um, which can be positive in the fact that you're seeing similar things over and over again. So you know you're going to get hamstring injuries, you know you're going to get ankle injuries, you know you're going to get knee ligament injuries. So you sort of know 
you can reflect on what you've done previously and apply that to the next injury. So if there's something you've not particularly done well with a hamstring, you know you're going to get one at some point again during the season. Um, the only flip on the flip side of that, you can come across an upper limb injury that you might not have seen since you was a student, or you might only see a shoulder injury once a season. So you're, you 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 tend to spend most of your time researching and looking at areas that you, you see more of. So you, in theory, as especially as a new graduate, you can become quite de-skilled quite quickly in terms of injuries that you won't necessarily see much. Um, so wrist, shoulder, elbow injuries that you might not necessarily see um, because you don't have that exposure that you do. Um, but yeah, in terms of not expecting, not expecting, it's a lot more more admin based than you think as well. So I've been quite surprised at how little physio I've done sometimes. So as an example, if I did an eight till, I don't know, eight till 4.30 day, two hours of that might be physio, the rest would be admin work. So you, you sort of, when you picture it from the outside, you think, oh, I'll go in, pitch side work, um, injury assessment, treatment, management. And then you sort of think, well, that might be it. You do your notes, you go home, but there's a lot more sort of stuff than you think in terms of rotor for part-time medical staff in the evenings for the academy, um, preparing for screening for medical forms, um, stuff like multidisciplinary team meetings with coaching staff, um, sports scientists, academy management, um, preparing for players' parents' evenings. So halfway through the season, the players get a... Um, sort of a review of how they're doing so far. Are they, are they hitting the targets they need to be hitting? Where's the areas of strengths, areas of weaknesses? And how we as a club might work towards improving that. So for an example, as a sports science medical department, we look at maybe sprint speed, um, what they like jumping, what's the body fat like? And we they're the sort of areas we'd flag up halfway through a season if they're still quite behind and, and say, look, these are the areas that you need to be working on if for us you're going to be good enough to get a scholar, uh, a pro, sorry. So so they're sort of the things that we look at with with the 18s. Um, you've also got, especially now with the COVID, you've got a lot of COVID policies, which which need updating every, it feels like every day, but it's every every 28 days or so. So there's a lot more, a lot more than you think from the outside that does go on and takes up your time. Um, yeah so I, and, and then stuff like you were always looking at how how you can improve what you provide as a service as well so in terms of a bit of context on that I look at stuff like we take GPS data from from injured players during their rehab sessions during the running and you look at how how I can use that GPS data more effectively to to review and monitor how the player is progressing through the through the rehab. So, for example, at the minute, I'm looking at putting together a, a spreadsheet that looks at uh, the weekly load and comparing that to match day averages and the season averages. And if hopefully as it goes up, as they get more progressing through the rehab, closer to returning, you're hoping to see numbers that are lower than their averages, getting closer and closer to what they normally hit on a match day and on a, on a weekly average. So it's it's bits that you you sort of look at how you can improve what you're what you're doing yourself as well, um, which you might not see from the outside. But yeah, it's it is what I expected, and it's not at the same time to sort of answer that. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you mentioned about the the admin side of it. Um, speaking from experience, current experience with doing an online sport uh, placement at the moment, um, that's not really something that they tend to bring up. And and just talking about. Um, expectations of sport as well there's a lot of surrounding the pressure and and you know like you mentioned the coaches and the and the parents and the players themselves as well and and how that can that can you know drive quite a high stress environment and you've got to make sure that you're ready for that sort of thing so I think it's also interesting that you mentioned the admin side of it and and how you know it's not always physio 24 7 there are other aspects of it and I guess um, Ovid's probably driven that admin side of it up quite a lot as well. I think I think Lewis is going to add something there. Yeah, and no, I was just going to ask how do how do you personally and how do do the other physios at Doncaster deal with that pressure from 
whether it's parents or, or coaches or um, even the agents of players in terms of if someone's out injured and they're coming back and there's an expectation for a player to be back by a certain date, but maybe it has to be extended. How do you approach that um, with with the coaches? And in in looking at that, are there any complications that, that usually rise up? Yes, I think in a in an academy environment, we're quite lucky to say that the pressure tends to be less than it would be in a first team environment um, because the the games program, as much as you want to win games, isn't as competitive as what there's no promotions relegations in in the academy football. So so you 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 less you're under less pressure from the coaching staff to to get those players back fit but at the same time they obviously want to be involved they need to be involved for um to be able to prove a point to be able to 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 showcase that they might be good enough for a professional contract um, and i think it, it's just about you you sort of get to know the coach and get to know how how they work better um some coaching staff won't want the player involved at all until they're fully fit. Some are happy for them to part train whilst coming out. If if they say they're ninety five percent or whatever, and you want them to do some some ball passing or possession pace drills, they're happy for them to join in that, then drop out for the mini games or something like that. Others don't want them involved at all until they can complete the full session. Um, so I think the key bit of that is is communicating with the coaches as to what they want from you and how you want to reintroduce the players, um, reintroduce them back into training. And then from the parent side, it, it can be quite difficult depending on the sort of parent you're obviously dealing with and and the, it tends to be more the ones that are older. So the 16s, for example, that again are wanting to, to get a scholarship that need to be on the pitch to be able to, to get a chance. They're the ones that tend to be a little bit more pushy, but I think you've just got to explain. You just explain the situation thoroughly. You explain the situation they're in, and that we we can't speed up the healing process as much as we want. I think the way I always put it across is as much as I want them on the pitch. Um, if I could have them on the pitch tomorrow, I'd have them on the pitch tomorrow. But we've got to look at the long term plan with them in terms of if me putting them back on the pitch is going to make a be a detriment to them in the long term then we're not going to do it um, and I think it's just it's been firm in that sense as well with the parents because uh, they they can be they can be more pushy sometimes than the players and you sort of see it where pe- parents are sort of even pushing players to to not mention injuries to say they feel okay because they know they need to be out there um, but we what we tend to do is at the start of the season we have a meeting with all the the players' parents across from the nice to sixteens and say, basically put out that if you put if your kids if you play if your if your son or whatever is is struggling with an injury, they need to report it because the sooner we pick it up, the hopefully the sooner that the sooner we can start to manage it and hopefully decrease the amount of time they have off. The longer they play with an injury, um, say if it's a growth related injury or like a tendinopathy, that the longer they play with that the longer it is likely need, going to need to, it's going to lengthen the rehab process more than likely. So it, it, it's sort of putting a little bit of trust in the parent in that they will come forward if there is any, if there is any issues. Um, but it can be quite difficult and I don't think you ever really uh, find a perfect way to deal with it. But I think you just have to adapt the way that you approach each 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 case individually and the way that you, you adapt one, uh, the way you approach one parent might be completely different to the way you approach another one. So it's about being able to adapt to, to the situation. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, that's brilliant. Thanks for that. So that'll wrap us up for part one and we'll move on to part two where we'll go into talking about Andy's interests and experiences. Yeah, so outside of your job, uh, do you have any special clinical interests um, and what are they if you do? Um, I think clinically, clinical interest-wise, it again, it sort of depends on um, depends on the injury that I'm sort of looking at. Uh, it tends to be everything tends to be MSK for me in terms because that's that's the the environment I'm in. Um, so I would sort of say stuff like I see a lot of hamstring strains. Um, so I'm quite 
I find that quite interesting in terms of looking at return to play, looking at prevention. So there's a study, I think, um, recently come out, I can't think of it, Tim Gabbett was on it, about how Nordic compliance, it's all right saying we'll do Nordics as a prevention strategy, but if we aren't compliant to the Nordics, then it's not going to, it's not going to reduce any risk of injury. Um, and it shows so that those that are in high, high groups of participation were at a less risk of injury of the hamstring strains than those with a low, um, a low compliance. And I think it decreased injuries across five seasons by nearly 50% in terms of hamstrings um, compared to groups that weren't, that weren't doing the Nordics. Um, and I find that I quite enjoy the hamstring rehab process. I think every time you get one, you, you, you change your approach a little bit based on what you did previously. So, you find certain exercises work quite well and you could be quite um, experimental and with, with the exercises you do. Um, it doesn't have to be based, it doesn't have to be the same thing time and time again. So uh, looking at how you can change a double leg bridge, how you can progress that to single leg, how you can progress it to different sort of contractions. Can it be say an isometric bridge with trunk rotation or extension? Can it be, a plyometric bridge, short lever, long lever. Can you switch uh, the speeds of you doing your bridges um, and stuff like your RDLs instead of just doing can, instead of just doing a, a plain dumbbell uh, dumbbell or barbell RDL? Can you look at applying a different stimulus? So looking at like a deceleration RDL with a band and just changing the way that you're 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 targeting the muscles. Um, stuff like the tantrums are quite using. I like to use quite a lot because um, they sort of emulate the running phase as well. Um, and then looking at the different drills, pitch-based drills you can do. Um, they obviously need to be able to hit high speeds a lot more. Um, and then looking at again back in the gym sort of stuff. What what the strain in terms of anatomy-wise is it a biceps? Is it a semitendinosus membranosus? And how they might want to work differently in terms of your rehab um, and how you can target them differently. Um, so I find hamstrings quite, quite interesting based on the amount that I've seen. Um, probably I touch on concussion as well. I think I know you've, you've done a recent podcast on that. Um, and I know you can, you can research that forever. It's like a dark hole. You, you never stop reading about that. You can never, you never really understand what's going on with it. Um, but stuff like, especially especially within the nines to sixteens, as as a younger athlete, they are more susceptible to concussions, um, with the brain still developing, and they're a more risk from a, a lesser impact injury. So something that an, an eighteen might sustain that they can just brush off that might cause a concussion as a as a nine, ten, eleven year old. So we've always got to be aware of that and the fact that probably fifty percent of them go un unreported. So we're probably missing 50% of the concussions that happen at a lower level because at a younger age, sorry, because they aren't being reported, whether that's because the symptoms don't develop until later. Um, so it's, it's, that's quite, a, I find that quite interesting, but you can, you can read that forever. Um, yeah. I think one of the pieces of advice um, I was given um, whenever I was doing some work at a club back home was that, if there's any sort of head injury at all on the pitch, don't don't even fathom playing them on. Just take them out of it and sort of stop it at the source. Um, and it was the head physio had told me to do that with with any of the academy players. And the first couple of times I'd done it, the parents were sort of looking and thinking, "What's going on? He's fine. He can he can run on." But it's until people are actually educated on it. Do you know you're sort of saying about the effects further down the line? You know, no, no one really knows. Yeah, definitely. I think I think that's that's education with the coaching staffs as well. Um, so it's it's sort of explaining that they do they initially have that spike in in energy following the injury. So following that initial head injury, they have a spike in um, which 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 sort of makes them present like they're okay. And then following that, you have the dip in the dip in the, um, the dip in energy, which is the spinning depression where. Um, the energy continues to de- energy continues to deplete for probably it can be days weeks, and that's when the symptoms gradually begin to develop, and that's what causes that late onset of, of symptoms, and that's where we're at risk of uh, the second impact syndrome and things like that. 
Um, and the thing I also find interesting, I don't know what your thoughts on this are, especially with when you look at return to play times, especially in elite football and stuff, where it's like seven days or 11 days, where if you look at reports and papers, it says that for us to fully repair from that loss of energy, it takes 20 to 45 days to fully restore um, energy stores that you lose following a concussion. So when your energy stores are quite depleted, you're still technically at risk of that second impact syndrome. So when we're saying when we're sending players back out because they've completed the graduated return to play, are we sending them out too soon still? Yeah, there's a big there's a big argument for that, isn't there? At the moment, it's all a case of people not quite knowing the answer and taking precautions, always being better over um, letting them carry on. And like you mentioned, if 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 the research suggests that there is a big loss of energy and it takes a lot longer than we're thinking to to regenerate that, then perhaps there is an argument to, to have the player rested and away from sport for even longer than we think. Yeah. So I guess the reason why I asked the question about um, special clinical interests, and like you mentioned there, the rehab side of it, um, was because I wanted to see if there's any parallels with your clinical interests and my possible dissertation topic. So I'm currently thinking of doing screening tools and their success in determining and therefore helping to prevent injury and wondered what your thoughts are on injury screening. So more the preventative side of things. Um, is that something that you practice at Doncaster or, or have seen in your experience? And, and and if they do do it at Doncaster and you do it at Doncaster, what, what tools do you use for that? Yeah, I, th I, th I think there's a place, there's definitely a place for screening and, and looking at how that affects uh, potential injuries in terms of are we at more risk of injuries if we screen a certain thing but I think it, it's only it's only relevant and only there's only purposeful if we act on the data received from the screening so if we're screening a player getting the data and doing nothing with it then then it's a waste of time and I think in environments especially where where we're in the lower league football where you don't have that many members of staff um, you've got to prioritise what screening you do that you're going to act upon. I mean, you could throw 10, 20, 20 different screening tests out um, across different age groups. But if you can only, if you only got the time to act on one of them, then, then you're sort of, sort of wasting your time in that sense. Um, in terms of what we use at Doncaster, we use uh, the functional movement screening gets used across the academy. Um, I mean, there's a lot of argument around that in terms of why why we're still using it and, and things like that. Um, I personally think I'm not overly a great fan of it, but I think there is a place for it if you use it in the right way. So I think especially in, in younger, say, 9s to 11s, when they need that exposure to different movements to in terms of motor, motor skills, um, you can pick up on their ability to do these different movement patterns and especially as they're going to introduce those sort of movements as they they progress through the age groups in terms of the resistance training so when they start to include include when they start to include squats lunges and, and um, those sort of movement patterns if we can pick up early on when they're doing those body weight wise we can correct the movement so when they do come further down the line and if they do obviously get a scholarship as a, an under 18 we're getting them knowing that they can do the fundamentals right. If if they have a, a poor FMS score, does that mean that they're at a higher risk of injury? I'm not too sure. I think there's a lot of argument around that. Um, but I think you could, if, if you use it the right way, it can be quite a useful tool. Um, we also use the, we do the baseline SCAT tests for the 18s, um, more obviously for comparison in the, in the instance of, an, of another injury, we compare to baseline data because if you've, sorry, if, you, if you've done the test yourself, you know it can be quite challenging in terms of concentration ones where you haven't seen the numbers backwards and in reverse and some people are better at that than others. So that's why we get that, that baseline for the SCAT. Um, daily, we sort of do a well-being score on a daily basis. So when players come in, they score out five, how how ready to train they are and how they're feeling of the fatigue. So we'd use that as a guide to if they score, if they're coming in ones across the board being tired, fatigued, um, not ready to train, we'd look at that and say, 
is that muscular is that an issue in terms of that that needs to see myself as a physio or is it something that we look at the load that they've done the previous few days and they just they just in need of a rest because of fatigue so that's sort of a an injury that's sort of a screening in the sense of a daily one that we can keep on top of and monitor is that something that the the screening that you do before training in terms of how they're feeling is that something that you would flag up before they start the training session or is that something that would be picked up during training that you know they're maybe not running as hard or they're not hitting the same speed that they usually would and then it's sort of a reflection on what they've done or as I said is that something you're picking up before they even start training yeah so so you, you can you can pick it up before if, if it's say a one or a two that's something we, we drag the lads and say look is is everything okay are you is there any issues are you struggling with training or something like that we'd, we'd try and figure out if there's anything going on um if it's say a three and it comes to the training uh, training and you're looking and they're looking sluggish you look at what they've done after the session and the numbers are down compared to the rest of the lads and that's probably the way you look and think well maybe they weren't that that three was reflective of how ready to train they really were um but then you get the the, the issues of sometimes they just tick numbers for the sake of it just to tick the box yeah. you'll, you'll, it'll be funny because you'll see they'll have done a heavy session the day before and you'll, you'll know the same names ticking four every day no matter how much they work no matter how little they work every time it's a four so yeah, that's always the challenge with um subjective forms like that isn't it it's people you never know if you're going to get an honest score and like you said people that just come in and, and don't take it so seriously it's hard to know that isn't it and i guess do you, do you tend to use your own judgment? Um, obviously, you're in, in every day with the lads. Do you tend to use your own judgment and, and go off that sometimes or do you kind of let it be? Yeah, so so we'll, if we if you notice a pattern where every single day it's a four, you'll tend to question and make sure they know they're doing it right. Um, so, for example, we had injured lads coming in. They were ticking a five every day. So we're sort of saying, hang on, you've, you, you pulled your hamstring yesterday. Why are you a five? And then they're thinking, well, I thought I was a five because I'm ready. I could do a, do whatever you're going to do with me today, but that would make me a five. Um, so we sort of have to change it a little bit for the injured lads, give them the plan for the week. And if 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 I say, right, we're going out to do some some endurance running tomorrow, and they come in and tick a, a two, and they say, well, I don't feel right for doing endurance, but I feel okay for doing a gym session. Um, so that we've sort of adapted it a little bit for that. But what we also tie into that for the for the lads that are training is we do a, a counter movement jump as well. So we measure that based on their, their one rep, one, well, one rep max, their maximum number um, and as a percentage. So if they're coming in, they're, they're reporting a two on the readiness to train and they're also registering 40, 50%, which I know is quite a low number, but just for an example, if they're registering 40% of their max counter movement jump, then we can sort of, that's an extra, that's a sort of a, an objective measurement that we can use to say, to back up that subjective, uh, to sort of, to sort of highlight that they aren't ready to train or we might need to monitor or reduce the amount that they're going to be doing that day. Um, I just wanted to ask a question about um, the sort of relationship that the physio department has with the sports science. So earlier you had mentioned about you were doing a spreadsheet looking at the, the GPS data. Do you use the GPS data and the, sort of looking at their workloads to sort of, for an individual, if you like, to sort of monitor how they're going to recover or even use it to possibly predict a future injury? Yes. Yeah, so, so, you, so you use it for, for all of those that you've mentioned. Um, it gets, the GPS data gets done every day in terms of both training and rehab. Um, so we'll use the data for the fit players and we'll monitor sort of how much they've done that week, how much they've done that day. And then we'll look at if there's any, I know you you can talk about the acute chronic ratio, but you just tend to look at a, a percentage. Have they done 10, 15% more that week? The higher the percentage, the, the higher the risk of the injury. And obviously if it goes the other way, if they've done too little that week compared to a previous week or compared to the season averages, then, then you're sort of thinking they're still at risk of an injury, but from the opposite side that they're not prepared to do what they need to do. Um, from a from an injury rehab point of view, um, I'm starting to use it a lot more now in terms of help. It helps you have that extra bit behind you when you say, right, you're okay, you're ready to train. Um, 
so just as an example, the metrics we sort of use are we use a total distance, um, we use a max speed, we use a high speed distance, accelerations, decelerations. Um, and I've started now to use a meter a meters per minute. So looking at on average how many meters they're covering per minute of a of a game and comparing that to how many meters they're covering in a rehab session. Because that sort of looks at because it's an interval sort of sport, it brings that metric into play a little bit. Um, and I, like I said before, I could then compare those numbers to what they're hitting on a on a on a match day in terms of the high speed distance. So I ideally like to be able to hit a thousand meters high speed in one session to know that that will sort of be around there or thereabouts figure as to what they'd hit on a match day. Um, week week load wise, we we tend to hit um, probably 30, 35, 40 k a week. Um, but we're trying, we're trying to increase that a little bit as well. So it's all about, it's not necessarily just about hitting high speeds. So I, ideally you want to be hitting 95%, if not more of your max speed repeatedly before going back into training for me. Um, but also being able to meet the demands of the week. So it's sort of come off my own back in terms of realising that, okay, they've hit the max speed, but have I really sent them back in to be able to withstand a full week's worth of training because it can be quite quick in the minute you sort of think, oh yeah, he's done everything I need him to do. He can go back into training. But if he's had four or five weeks out, for example, and he's done 15, 20 K with you, but when he jumps back in with the team, he's hitting nearly 40 K a week. That's an extra 20 K that is, is adding on yeah. top of his load. So that completely changes everything. Um, so sort of looking at that a little bit more now in terms of the overall week load, not just comparing it to one day, comparing so it to the, the whole week. More the chronic loads, chronic chronic training loads, rather than just looking at the, the small scale week stuff, looking at the months and the bigger time frames. Yeah, definitely. And that, that applies to, to a long term injuries, a lot term. So if you've got a lad that's, a knock or a kick or something like that and just needs a couple of days for it to settle down before you chuck him back in. You're not too concerned that he's, he's, he's had too much time away from that training load exposure. But when they've had seven, eight weeks out or whatever, they've obviously did quite a lot. Um, so it's taken into account that overall week load, not just the, the match days that they required. That's brilliant. Thanks. So for part three, we're going to talk about future planning and goal setting. So, Andy, I hope you don't mind me asking. Don't want to be spoiling any big plans that you've got or anything like that. Um, could you tell us if you have any future aspirations or, or plans set out at, at this current point? Um, ideally, in the long term, it's always been a, a goal to work in the first team, to work be a first-team environment. Um, I'd like to, to challenge myself at that higher demand, high standard, high pressure, um, more from both the coaches and the players. And I think that also comes with being able to access more resources. Um, I mean, if you look at the, the Man City document and you look at the equipment and the, that they've got available to themselves, that sort of, in theory, you'd hope that would make your job a lot easier, um, especially with the amount of physios they've got. I think they've got more physios than we've got players. Um, but so that that would be it's like a that that challenges a little bit more because the demands are higher from the players. Um, but in that sort of sense, I'm not in any rush at the minute. I'm quite happy with less pressure and learning a little bit more at the minute. Um, long long term, I'd, again, it's quite a you, you give up all your weekends, a lot of different shifts. You never really have a a, a proper planned week. You can have games thrown in randomly. Um, so I think long long term potential of going back into the NHS working within the MSK in there potentially depending on again how I find the first team work um, but I definitely want to have a crack at that sort of that sort of stuff before I do, 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 do before I do decide to go back into the NHS um, but yeah nothing nothing long term at the minute I'm just happy as I am plodding along yeah so I suppose in terms of advice that you'd give to to guys like us 
at the moment would you say it's better to have a, a step-by-step plan in terms of where you want to get to or sort of go with the flow a wee bit um i think i think a little bit with those both i think it definitely does help help to have a plan um i think for your own self-development you need to have short-term goals if if in terms of whether that's as a career or whether that's just developing your own skills. So whether that's um, highlighting what areas of weakness that you want to work on and working on those so that when you do, so for example, when I want, when I, when I try to step up to that first team environment, I want to know that I'm capable of doing it. I don't want to just jump in now, for example, and, and be caught short, and, and sort of be caught out in different areas. I want to make sure that I'm I'm comfortable with what I'm doing. Um, so I think little short-term goals in that sense of working on areas that I need to, I need to improve will help with that long-term goal. Um, but again, everything doesn't doesn't always go to plan. Um, so I think not being afraid to change for your own development is key as well. So if something that you've planned and you have achieved it, but you're not happy with it, then don't be afraid of, of sort of changing your goals um, because you've got to be happy with what you do. And sometimes that initial goal that you set out won't necessarily make you happy. So I think having having backup plans definitely helps and is definitely important. Um, but no, I think I think goal setting is, is massive. And I think if you've not got a goal to work towards, then it can become... Uh, quite stagnant and quite distracted in terms of what what you're overall trying to achieve. That's yeah, some really good advice there. Okay, so for the final part, we're going to ask you three questions as the same as we do at each episode. So the first question is, what would you say are the three most important behaviours or traits for a physiotherapist are in your experience and why? Um. I think definitely, definitely communication. I think that we've already touched on um, with players and parents and coaching staff, um, and then obviously in in other environments, sort of with your multidisciplinary team. I think you've got to be able to approach and adapt your approach to people differently. Um, how you speak to one player or patient will be totally different to how you speak to another player or patient. Sometimes. If, we, if we're still using football as an example, sometimes a player might need encouragement and and uh, like an arm around them to sort of, especially in a long-term injury, um, as a physio to sort of motivate them to carry on, motivate them to get back and carry on with the rehab. But then at the same time, sometimes they need um, a bit of a kick in terms of, look, what you're doing is not good enough. Um, and so again it's knowing the player knowing who's going to react to that better knowing who you can comfort and who you need to to really hammer home in terms of motivating and saying look you're not doing enough here and I think especially with the academy you need to always look at the angle so I always use the what are you working what are you actually here for what are you wanting to achieve you wanting to achieve two years of two years of just playing football with your mates and, and going on going to college or are you wanting to achieve what you've set out to achieve and, and try and get a pro contract um, so I think communicating with different players differently is, is key and again same with the coaching staff and the parents that we've, spoken, that we've spoken about before um, I think being adaptive as well adaptability in terms of being able to adapt to your environment so adapting to the equipment you've got available um, pitch space what time you've got available so for example working at Sills and I had minimal equipment and you've got to you've got cones you've got a few bands and you've got some dumbbells that someone's brought from the garage um so you've got to look at what can i do with that equipment to provide the service i need to provide especially when you've got injuries that ideally you need heavier weights and stuff for so like like pcl tears or longer term injuries where you've got that muscle muscle atrophy and you've got to think how can i really really deliver the service I need to deliver on minimal equipment. Um, same with pitch space. Sometimes you'll turn up to a training session and you've got the, the, an area the size of the corner flag and you've got to think, well, what can I do with this little box I've got? So you might have a full session planned out. All of a sudden that's, that's gone and you're, 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 you're using your head to rack and think, well, what, what sessions have I got that I can do down the side of the pitch or straight at 
like changing your plans and just doing straight line running or something like that. You've got to make, you've got to be ready to adapt quite quickly. Um, that's the same with the time. You could, you could plan an hour session, get interrupted by another player going down. And then before you know it, you've got 45, 30 minutes left to do your session. Um, so adaptability is, is massive, especially in football. Um, you'll get times when you'll plan for three players. The next thing you know, you've got four or five, um, not only in the gym, but on the side of the pitch. So you've got to have multiple sort of exercises in your mind that, and, and rehab sessions that you can go to if, if your numbers change. Um, so I'd definitely say adaptability is, is key. Um, and then being able to self-reflect, if you call that sort of a trait, um, I think when you need to know need to know what you've done well, what you've not done well, and sort of what you what you you do differently next time. Um, you don't necessarily have to write it down. You can have that in your head if if you can remember that sort of thing. And especially with like I said, with 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 injuries that you see quite often, hamstrings, ankle injuries, you'll know what worked that time, what didn't work well, or what worked for a biceps strain didn't work for the semimembranosus strain and. And it's sort of knowing exactly what exercises you find that really do work well and in a self-reflecting sort of way. Um, can be that, can be how you've communicated with the player, how you communicated with the parent. Again, it all sort of intertwines with the self-reflection. Um, and I think, I, think, I think that's massive in terms of physio. I know, especially when I was a, 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 as a physio student, as a sports rehab student, I used to hate it, writing it down as a Gibbs cycle. And I always used to think this is the most pointless thing I've ever done. But then when, when you think about it, you're still reflecting on your way home from, from work in the car, you're thinking, oh, I should have done that. And that's still, that's still self-reflecting. Um, so I think that's, that's massive for a physio as well. Yeah, some really interesting stuff. And I think we're starting to see some, some themes between the answers that we are getting uh, in the episodes. Uh, communication in particular is always a, massive, uh, massive, a massively significant aspect of physiotherapy. So... Next, we wanted to ask you, uh, what excites you the most about the future of physiotherapy? Um, I think in terms of the roles available to physio now, like if you look at the first contact practitioners, I think that's a really good, um, a really good service. So to, to, get, to get people faster access to MSK care um, and they can provide better appointment times than what, what GPs can and a bit more specific to the, to the patient. And that obviously takes a little bit of pressure off, off the GP service as well. Um, and it can be that little bit more specific to what we need. So if I know, I know it's GPs can tend to go straight to something in terms of quite specific, quite generic. Whereas as a physio, we can maybe provide a little bit more specific rehabilitation early, earlier on. So that might reduce, the overall amount of appointments that we're having or it cuts out the GP as the middleman and, and gives them that appointment time to somebody else that might need something non-MSK related. Um, in terms of in an MSK sort of area, I think I like the way that it's starting to move more away from manual therapy and is now more, a lot more attention now being paid to, to actual rehab um, as part of the physio process. So I know there is, there is a place for manual therapy at times, um, but I don't feel like that should ever be the priority. I think the priority should be a, a solid rehab, rehab plan as a, as a foundation. Um, so I think, I know, I know there's quite a lot of controversy over it and there's a lot of physios fight back and forth about that. Um, but I think it's definitely, definitely a good way that the practice is going. Um, personally, I don't tend to use overly loads of manual therapy, especially now with COVID. You've got to really be able to justify uh, the the meaning behind it as to to why I would bother doing it at the minute. Um, and I think for me, I think more universities should, in terms of with the physio degree, should have that emphasis on exercise prescription as well. So focusing more on um, progression and regression of exercises and it's quite easy just to to go into that autopilot in terms of in an nhs environment of sit to stands standing leg abductions and stuff like that so i think having a wider knowledge of exercise prescription and how we can progress those 
um, in terms of as a university modules or however they would do it would be would be quite beneficial as well. Really interesting. And the final question that we'd like to finish on, uh, one that we let our guests interpret and take whichever way they want. That's kind of the intention behind it. Um, so yeah, you can take it any way you want. So it's, are you satisfied? <laughs> um, yes and no. <laughs> I think I'm going to sit on the fence massively. Um, I think yes. If you, I think if I look at it two ways. I'd say, am I satisfied where I'm at now from where I was before? I'd say yes. I think if you, if I look back and see how much I've done in quite a short space of time. Um, I've experienced quite a lot um, of different different scenarios, especially working abroad with the medics and gone from being supervised as a student to, to being on my own and then back into professional football again. And I think if I look at it that way in the way that I've developed over the last five years, I would say, yeah, I'm satisfied with, with what I've done. But then I think... At the same time, looking forwards, no, I'm not satisfied because I think if I become satisfied now, I'll stagnate and I'll not necessarily develop anymore. So I think to be satisfied is a good thing, but I also think it, it can be quite a big big negative. I think you, you can never be satisfied, otherwise you'll not progress and you'll not seek to develop and, and become, be, become better at what you do. So I think there's definitely always a time to look back and in five years' time I'll look back again and am I satisfied with what I've done in the next five years? Um, but I think you've always got to strive for more and just never really, never settle for, for where you're at at the minute and what you know. There's always, there's always more to know and I don't think you'll ever know everything. Um, so I think if there, I think that's how I'd sort of see that question. I know we're sat on the fence a little bit with it, but... No, perfect. Uh, really good answer. And, and thank you very much for, for being on the podcast. It's yeah, been great to have you. No, thanks for having me. So that's it for episode five of the podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Spotify by typing in Student Physio Podcast Bradford and follow our, our Instagram and Twitter at UOB Physiosoc. Thank you very much for listening and bye for now.